Chapter 13. The Chorus Line. The Wily Sea Captain. A Sea Shanty. As performed by the twelve maids in sailor costumes. O wily Odysseus, he set out from Troy, with his boat full of loot and his heart full of joy. For he was Athene's own shiny-eyed boy, with his lies and his tricks and his thieving. His first port of call was the sweet lotus shore, where we sailors did long to forget the foul war. But we soon were hauled off on the black ships once more, although we were pining and grieving. To the dread one-eyed Cyclops, then next we did hie. He wanted to eat us, so we pulled, put out his eye. Our lad said, I'm no one, but then bragged, Twas I, Odysseus, the prince of deceiving. So there's a curse on his head from Poseidon his foe that is dodging his heels as he sails to and fro. And a big bag of wind that will boisterously blow, Odysseus the saltiest seaman. Here's a health to our captain, so gallant and free, whether stuck on a rock or asleep neath a tree, or rolled in the arms of some nymph of the sea, which is where we would all like to be, man. The vile Astrogians then we did meet, who dined on our men from their brains to their feet. He was sorry he'd asked them for something to eat. Odysseus, the epical he-man. On the island of Circe, we were turned into swine, till Odysseus begged the goddess so fine. Then he ate up, up her cakes and drank up her wine. For a year he became her blithed lodger. So a heath to our captain, where'er he may roam, tossed here and tossed there on the wide ocean's foam, and he's in no hurry to ever get home, Odysseus, the crafty old codger. To the Isle of the Dead, then he next took his way, filled a trench up with blood, held the spirits at bay, till he learned what Tiresias the sea had to say, Odysseus, the artfulest dodger. The sirens sweet sing, then next did he brave, they attempted to lure him to a feathery grave. While tied to the mast, he did rant and did rave, but Odysseus alone learned their riddle. The whirlpool Chibidus did not outlad catch, nor snake-headed Skylar, she could not him snatch. Then he ran the foul rocks that would grind you to scratch, for their clashing he gave not a piddle. We meant it a bad turn against his command. When we ate the sun's cattle, they sure tasted grand. In a storm we all perished, but our captain reached land on the isle of the goddess Calypso. After seven long years there of kissing and woo, he escaped on a raft that was drove to and fro. Till fair Narcissus maids that the laundry did do, Found him bare on the beach, he did drip so. Then he told his adventures and laid to his short store a hundred disasters and sufferings galore. For no one can tell what the fates have in store, not Odysseus, the master disguiser. So a health to our captain, wherever he may be, whether walking the earth or adrift on the sea. For he's not down in Hades, unlike all of we, 
and we leave you not any the wiser. Chapter 14. The suitors stuff their faces. I was wandering in the fields one day, if it was a day, nibbling on some asphodel, when I ran into Antonius. He usually struts around in his finest cloak and his best robe, gold brooches and all, looking belligerent and haughty, and shouldering aside the other spirits. But as soon as he sees me, he assumes the guise of his own corpse, with blood spurting all down his front and an arrow through his neck. He was the first of the suitors that Odysseus shot. This performance of his with the arrow is meant to, as a reproach, or so he intends it, but it doesn't cut any ice with me. The man was a pest when he was alive, and a pest he remains. Greetings, Antinius, I said to him. I wish you'd take that arrow out of your neck. It is the arrow of my love, Penelope, of the divine form, fairest and most sanctious of all women, he replied. Although it came from the renowned bow of Odysseus, in reality the cruel archer was Cupid himself. I wear it in remembrance of the great passion I bore for you and carried to my grave. He goes on in his spiritual way, spurious way, quite a lot, having had a good deal of practice at it while he was alive. Come now, Antinius, I said. We're dead now. You don't have to blather on in this fatuous man down here. You have nothing to gain by it. There's no need for you to trademark hypocrisy. So be a good fellow for once and just eject the arrow. It does nothing to improve your appearance. He gazed at me lugubriously with eyes like a whipped spaniel's. Merciless in life, merciless in death, he sighed. But the arrow vanished and the blood disappeared and his greenish-white complexion returned to normal. Thank you, I said. That's better. Now we can be friends. And as a friend, you can tell me, why did your suitors risk your lives by acting in such an outrageous way towards me and towards Odysseus, not once but for years and years? It's not that you weren't warned. Prophets foretold your doom, and Zeus himself sent a sent bird portraits and significant thunderings. Antinius laughed. The gods wanted to destroy us, he said. That's everyone's excuse for behaving badly, I said. Tell me the truth. It was hardly my divine beauty. I was 35 years old by the end of it, worn out with care and weeping, as we both know I was getting quite fat around the middle. You suitors weren't born when Odysseus set out for Troy, or else you were mere babies like my son, Telemachus. Or you were children at the very most. So for all practical purposes, I was old enough to be your mother. You blabbed on about how I made your knees melt and how you longed to have me share your bed and bear your children, yet you knew perfectly well I that I was all but past childbearing age. You could probably have still squeezed out one or two little brats, Antinius replied nastily. He could barely suppress a smirk. That's more like it, I said. I prefer straightforward answers. So what's your real motive? We wanted the treasure trove, naturally, he said, not to mention the kingdom. 
This time he had the impudence to laugh outright. What young man wouldn't want to marry a rich and famous widow? Widows are supposed to be consumed with lust, especially if their husbands have been missing or dead for such a long time, as yours was. You weren't exactly a Helen, but we could have dealt with that. The darkness conceals much. All the better that you were 20 years older than us. You'd die first, perhaps with a little help, and then, furnished with your wealth, we could have had our pick of any young and beautiful princess we wanted. You didn't really think we were maddened by love for you, did you? You may not have been much to look at, but you were always intelligent. I'd said I preferred straightforward answers, but of course nobody does, not when the answers are so unflattering. Thank you for your frankness, I said coldly. It must be a relief to you to express your real feelings for once. You can put the arrow back now. To tell you the truth, I felt a surge of joy every time I see it sticking out of through your lying, gluttonous neck. The suitors did not appear on the scene right away. For the first nine or ten years of Odysseus's absence, we knew where he was. He was at Troy, and we knew that he was still alive. No, they didn't start besieging the palace until hope had dwindled and was flickering out. First five came, then ten, then fifty. The more there were, the more we were attracted each fearing to miss out on the perpetual feasting and the marriage lottery. They were like vultures when they spot a dead cow. One drops, then another, until finally every vulture for miles around is tearing up the carcass. They simply showed up every day at the palace and proclaimed themselves my guests, imposing upon me as their host. Then, taking advantage of my weakness and lack of manpower, they helped themselves to our livestock butchering the animals themselves, roasting the flesh with the help of their servants and ordering my maids about and pinching their bottoms as if they were in their own homes. It was astonishing the amount of food they could cram into themselves. They gorged as if their legs were hollow. Each one ate as if to outdo all the others at eating. Their goal was to wear down my resistance with the threat of imp impoverishment. So mountains of meat and hillocks of bread and rivers of wine vanished down their throats, as if the earth had opened and swallowed everything down. They said they would continue in this manner until I chose one of them as my new husband. So they punctuated their drink parties and merrymaking with moronic speeches about my ravishing beauty and my excellence and wisdom. I can't pretend that I didn't enjoy a certain amount of this. Everyone does. We all like to hear songs in our praise, even if we don't believe them. But I tried to view their antics as one might view a spectacle or a piece of buffoonery. What new smiles might, similes might they employ? Which one would pretend most convincing, convincingly to swoon with the rapture at the sight of me? Once in a while, I would make an appearance in the hall where they were feasting, backed by my two maids just to watch them all outdo themselves. Amphinomus usually won on the grounds of good manners, although he was by far from being the most vigorous. I have to admit that I occasionally daydreamed about which one I would rather go to bed with if it came to that. Afterwards, the maids would tell me what pleasantries the suitors were exchanging behind my back. They were well positioned to eavesdrop as they were forced to help serve that meat, the meat and drink. What did the suitors have to say about me amongst themselves? Here are a few samples. 
First prize, a week in Penelope's bed. Second prize, two weeks in Penelope's bed. Close your eyes and they're all the same. Just imagine she's Helen. That'll put a bronze in put bronze in your spear. Ha ha. When's the old bitch going to make up her mind? Let's murder the son, get him out of the way while he's young. The little bastard's starting to get on my nerves. What's to stop one of us from just grabbing the old cow and making off with her? No, lads, that would be cheating. You know our bargain. Whoever gets the prize gives our respectable gifts to the others. We'd agreed, right? We're all in this together. Do or die. You do, she dies, because whoever wins has to fuck her to death. Ha 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 ha. Sometimes I wondered whether the maids were making some of this up out of the high spirits or just to tease me. They seemed to enjoy the reports they brought, especially when I dissolved in tears and prayed to grey-eyed Athene either to bring Odysseus back or put an end to my sufferings. Then they could dissolve in tears as well and weep and wail and bring me comforting drinks. It was a relief to their nerves. Eurystheia was especially diligent in the reporting of malicious gossip, whether true or invented. Most probably she was trying to harden my heart against the suitors and their ardent pleas so I would remain faithful to the very last gasp. She was always Odysseus' biggest fan. What could I do to stop these aristocrat young thugs? They were at an age when they were all swagger, so appeals to their generosity attempts to reason with them and threats of retribution alike had no effect. Not one would bring back down for fear the others would, would jeer at him and call him a coward. Remonstrating with their parents did no good. Their family stood to gain by their behaviour. Telemachus was too young to oppose them and in any case he was the only one. He was only one and there were hundred. 112 or 108 or 120 it was hard to keep track of the number there were so many the men were who might have been loyal to Odysseus had sailed off with him to Troy and any of the those remaining who might have taken my side were intimidated by the sheer force of numbers and were afraid to speak up I knew it would do no good to try to expel my unwanted suitors or to bar the palace doors against them if I tried that, they'd turn really ugly and go on a rampage and snatch by force what they were attempting to win by persuasion. But I was a daughter of a naiad. I remembered my mother's advice to me. Behave like water, I told myself. Don't try to oppose them. When they try to grasp you, slip through their fingers. Flow around them. For this reason, I pretended to view their wooing favourably in theory. I even went as far as to encourage one and then to send them secret messages. But I told them before choosing amongst them, I had to be satisfied in my mind that Odysseus would never return. Chapter 15. The Shroud Month by month, the pressure on me increased. I spent whole days in my room. Not the room I used to share with Odysseus. No, I couldn't bear that but a room of my own in the woman's quarters. I would lie on my bed and weep and wonder what on earth I should do. I certainly didn't want to marry any of those mannerless young whelps, but my son, Telemachus, was growing up and he was almost the same age as the suitors, more or less, and he was starting to look at me in an odd way, holding me responsible for the fact that his inheritance was being literally gobbled up. 
How much easier for him it would be if I was to just pack up and go back to my father, King Icarus of Sparta. The chances of my doing that of my own free will were zero. I had no intention of being hurled into the sea a second time. Telemachus initially thought my return to my home palace would be a fine outcome from his point of view, but on second thought, after he'd done the math, he realised that a good part of the gold and silver in the palace would go back with me as it had been my dowry, and if I stayed in Ithaca and married one of the noble puppies, that puppy would become the king and his stepfather, and he would have authority over him. Being ordered around by a lad no older than himself did not appeal. Really, the best solution for him would have been a graceful death on my part, one of which was he was in no way to blame. For if he did as Orestus had done, but with no cause, unlike Orestes, the murder of his mother, he would attract the en- any re- yes, Erinus, and dreaded furies, snake-haired, dog-headed and bat-winged, and they would pursue him with their barking and hissing and their whips and scourges until they had driven him insane. And since he would have killed me in cold blood and for the basest of motives, the acquisition of wealth, it would be impossible for him to obtain purification at any shrine and he would be polluted with my blood unlike he died until he died a horrible death in a state of raving madness. A mother's life is sacred. Even a badly behaved mother's life is sacred. Witness my foul cousin Clemenstria, adulteress, butcher of her husband, tormented, tormentor of her children, and nobody said I was badly beha- ba- a badly behaved mother, but I did not appreciate the barrage of surely mono- monosyllables and resentful glances I was getting from my own son. When the suitors had started their campaign, I'd reminded them that the eventual return of Odysseus had been foretold by an oracle, but he failed to turn up. Year after year, faith in the oracle became to wear thin. Perhaps it had been misinterpreted. The suitors declared oracles were notoriously ambiguous. Even I began to doubt, and at last I had to agree, or at least in public, that Odysseus was probably dead. Yet his ghost had never appeared to me in a dream, as would have been proper. I could not quite believe that he would fail to send me any word, send me any word from of any kind from Hades, should he happen to have reached that sh- shady realm. I kept trying to think of a way to postpone the day of decision without reproach to myself. Finally, a scheme occurred to me. When telling the story later, I used that. I used to say that it was Pallas Athene, goddess of weaving, who had given me this idea, and perhaps this was true, for all I know, but crediting some god for one's inspirations was always a good way to avoid accusations of pride, should the scheme succeed, as well as the blame if it did not. Here is what I did. I set up a large piece of weaving in my loom, on my loom and said it was a shroud for my father-in-law, Laertes, since it would be imposterous of me not to provide a costly winding sheet for him in the event that he should die. Not until this sacred work was finished could I even think of choosing a new husband, but once it was completed I would speedily select the lucky man. Laertes was not very pleased by this kind thought of mine, but he'd heard of it 
but he heard of it, he kept away from the palace more than ever. What if some impatient suitor should hasten his end, forcing me to bury Laertes in the shroud, ready or not, and thus precipitating my own wedding? No one could oppose my task. It was so extremely pious. All day I would work away at my loom, weaving diligently and saying melancholy things like, this shroud would be a fitter garment for me, for me than Laertes, wretched that I am, and doomed by the gods to a life that is living death but at night I would undo what I had accomplished so the shroud never got any bigger to help me in the laborious task I chose 12 of my maidservants the youngest ones because these had been these had been with me all their lives I'd brought them or acquired them when they were small children brought them up as playmates for telematches and trained them carefully in everything they would need to know about the palace they were pleasant girls full of energy they were a little loud and giggly sometimes, as all maids are in youth, but it cheered me up to hear them chattering away and listen to their singing. They had lovely voices, all of them, and they had been taught well how to use them. They were my most trusted eyes and ears in the palace, and it was they who helped me pick away at my weaving behind locked doors at the dead of night and by torchlight for more than three years. Though we had to do it carefully and talk in whispers, these nights had a touch of festivity about them, a touch even of hilarity. Melantho of the pretty cheeks smuggled in treats for us to nibble on, figs in season, bread dipped in honeycomb, heated wine in winter. We told stories as we worked away at our task of destruction. We shared riddles, we made jokes. In the flickering light of the torches, our daylight faces were softened and changed by our daylight manners. We were almost like sisters. In the mornings, our eyes darkened by lack of sleep. We exchanged smiles of complicity. And here and there, a quick squeeze of the hand. Their yes ma'ams and no ma'ams hovered on the edge of laughter, as if neither they nor I could take their servile behaviour seriously. Unfortunately, one of them betrayed the secret of my intimidable weaving. I'm not sure. I'm sure it was an accident. The young are careless and she must have let slip a hint of a word. I still don't know which one. Down here among the shadows, they all go about in a group. And when I approach them, they run away. They shun me as if I had done them a terrible injury. But I would never have hurt them, not of my own accord. The fact that my secret was betrayed was, strictly speaking, my own fault. I told my 12 young maids, the loveliest, the most beguiling, to hang around the suitors and spy on them, using whatever enticing arts they could invent. No one knew of my instructions but myself and the maids in question. I chose not to share the secret with Urias Lear, in hindsight, a grave mistake. This plan came to grief. Several of the girls were unfortunately raped. Others were seduced or were hard-pressed and decided that it was better to give in than to resist. It was not unusual for my guests in a large household or a palace to sleep with the maids. To provide a lively night's entertainment was considered part of a good host's hospitality and such a host would magnanimously offer his guests their pick of the girls. 
but it was most irregular for the servants to be used in this way without the permission of the master of the house. Such an act amounted to thievery. However, there was no master of the house, so the suitors helped themselves to the maids in the same way they helped themselves to the sheep and the pigs and goats and the cows. They probably thought nothing of it. I comforted the girls as best I could. They felt quite guilty and the ones that had been raped needed to be tended and cared for. I put this task into the hands of, of old Eurycia, who cursed the bad suitors and bathed the girls and rubbed them with my very own perfumed olive oil for a special treat. She grumbled a bit about doing it. Possibly she resented my affection for the girls. She told me I was spoiling them and they would, they would get ideas about them, above themselves. Never mind, I said to them. You must pretend to be in love with these men. If they think you have taken their side, they'll confide in you and will know their plans. It's one way of serving your master and he'll be very pleased with you when he comes home. That made them feel better. I even instructed them to say rude and disrespectful things about me and Telemachus and, the, and Odysseus as well in order to further the illusion. They threw themselves into this project with a will. Melantho of the Pretty Cheeks was particularly adept at it and had lots of fun thinking up snide remarks. There is indeed something delightful about being able to combine obedience and disobedience in the same act. Not that the whole charade was entirely an illusion. Several of them did fall in love with the men who had used them so badly. I suppose it was ine inevitable. They thought I couldn't see what was going on, but I knew it perfectly well. I forgave them, however. They were young and inexperienced, and it wasn't every slave and it wasn't every slave girl in Ithaca who could boast of being the mistress of a young nobleman. But love or no love, midnight excursions or none, they continued to report to me any useful information they should find. So I foolishly thought myself quite wise. In retrospect, I can see that my actions were ill-considered and caused harm, but I was running out of time and becoming desperate, and I had to use every ruse and stratagem at my command. When they found out, about the trick I'd played on them with the shroud, the suitors broke into my quarters that night and caught me in my work. They were very angry, but not but not least because they'd been fooled by a woman and they made a terrible scene and I was put on the defensive. I had to promise to finish the shroud as quickly as possible, after which I would, without fail, choose one of them as a husband. The shroud itself became a story almost instantly. Penelope's Web, it was called. People used to say that if the if any task that remained mysteriously unfinished. I did not appreciate the term web. If the shroud was a web, then I was the spider. But I had not been attempting to catch men like flies. On the contrary, I'd merely been trying to avoid entanglement myself. Chapter 16. Bad Dreams. Now began the worst period of my ordeal. I cried so much I thought I would turn into a river or a fountain, as in the old tales. No matter how much I prayed and offered up sacrifices and watched for omens, my husband still didn't return. To add to my misery, Telemachus was now of an age to start ordering me around. I'd run the palace affairs almost single-handedly for 20 years, but now he wanted to assert his authority as the only son of Odysseus and take over the reins. He started making scenes in the hall, standing up to the suitors in a rash way that I was certain was going to get him killed. 
he was bound to embark on some full-heartedly adventure or other, as young men will. Sure enough, he snuck off in a ship to go chasing around looking for news of his father without even so much as consulting me. It was a terrible insult, but I couldn't dwell on, the, that, on that part of it because my favourite maids brought me the news that the suitors, having learned of my son's daring escapade, were sending a ship of their own to lie in wait for him and ambush him and kill him on his return voyage. It's true that the Herald Medan revealed his plot to me as well, just as the songs relate, but I already knew about it from the maids. I had to appear to be surprised, however, because otherwise Medan, who was neither on one side nor another, would have known I had my own sources of information. Well, naturally I staggered around and fell onto the threshold and cried and wailed and all of my maids, my 12 favourites and the rest of them, joined in my lamentations. I reproached them all, not having told me of my son's departure and for not stopping him until that interfering old biddy, Eurocelia, confessed that she alone had aided and abetted him. The only reason the two of them hadn't told me, she said, was that they hadn't wanted me to fret. But all would come out fine in the end, she added, because the gods were just. I would refrain from saying I'd seen scant evidence of that so far. When things get too dis dismal and after I've done as much weeping as possible without turning myself into a pond, I have always fortunately been able to go to sleep. And when I sleep, I dream. I had a whole dream run of dreams that night, dreams that have not been recorded, for I never told them to a living soul. In one, Odysseus was having his head bashed in and his brains eaten by the Cyclops. In another, he was leaping into the water from the ship and swimming towards the sirens, who were singing with ravishing sweetness, just like my maids. But they were already stretching out their bird claws to tear him apart. In yet another, he was making love with a beautiful goddess and enjoying it very much. Then the goddess turned into Helen. She was looking at me over the bare shoulder of my husband with a malicious little smirk. This last was such a nightmare that it woke me up and I prayed that it was a false dream sent from the cave of Morpheus through the gate of ivory, not a true one sent through the gate of horn. I went back to sleep and at last managed a comforting dream. This one I did relate. Perhaps you've heard of it. My sister, Ephysime, was so much older than I was that I hardly knew her and who had married and moved far away, came into my room and stood by my bed, and she told me she had been sent by Athene herself because the gods didn't want me to suffer. Her message was that Telemachus would return safely. But when I questioned her about Odysseus, was he alive or dead, she refused to answer and slipped away. So much for the gods not wanting me to suffer. They all tease. I might as well have been a stray dog pelted with stones, or with its tail set alight for their amusement. Not the fat, the bones of an animal, but our suffering is what they love to savour. Chapter 17. The Chorus Line. Dream Boats. A Ballad. Sleep is the only rest we get. It's then we are at peace. We do not have to mop the floor and wipe away the grease. We are not chased around the hall and tumbled in the dirt by every dimwit nobleman who wants a slice of skirt. 
And when we sleep, we like to dream. We dream we are at sea. We sail the waves in golden boats, so happy, clean and free. In dreams, we're all beautiful. In glossy crimson dresses, we sleep with every man we love. We shower them with kisses. They fill our days with feasting. We fill their nights with song. We take them in our golden boats and drift the whole year long. And all is mirth and kindness. There are no tears of pain. For our decrees are merciful throughout our golden reign. But then the mornings wake us up. Once more we toil and slave and hoist our skirts at their demand for every prick and knave. Chapter 18. News of Helen. Telemachus avoided the ambush set for him, more by good luck than good planning, and reached home in safety. I welcomed him with tears of joy, and so did all of the maids. I'm sorry to say that my only son and I then had a big fight. You have the brains of a newt, I raged. How dare you take one of the boats and go off like that without even asking permission? You're barely more than a child. You have no experience at commanding a ship. You could have been killed 50 times over. And then what would your father have to say when he gets home? Of course, it would be all my fault for not keeping a better eye on you and so on. It was not the right line to take. Telemachus got up on his high horse. I denied that he was a child any longer and proclaimed his manhood. He'd come back, hadn't he, which was proof enough that he'd been known, he'd known what he was doing. Then he defied my parental authority by saying he didn't need anyone's permission to take a boat that was more or less a part of his own inheritance. But it was no thanks to me that he had any inheritance left since I hadn't defended it and now it was being all being eaten up by the suitors. He then said that he'd made the decision he had to make. He'd gone in search of his father, since no one else seemed prepared to lift a finger in that direction. He claimed his father would have been proud of him for showing some backbone and getting out from under the thumbs of the women, who, as usual, were being over-emotional and showing no reasonableness and judgment. By the woman, he meant me. How could he refer to his own mother as the woman? What could I do but burst into tears? I then made the, is this all the thanks I get? You have no idea what I've been through for your sake. No woman should have to put up with this sort of suffering. I might as well kill myself, self speech. But I'm afraid he heard it all before and showed, and this showed by his folded arms and rolled eyes up eyes that he was irritated by it and was waiting for me to finish. That done, we settled down. Telemachus had a nice bath drawn for him by the maids. They gave him a good scrubbing and some fresh clothes and then they brought in a lovely dinner for him and for his for some friends he'd invited over. Piraeus and Theomenus were their names. Piraeus was an Ithacan and had been in cahoots with my son on the secret voyage. I resolved to, resolved to have a word with him later and to speak to his parents about letting him run so wild. Theoclamenus was a stranger. He seemed nice enough, but I made a mental note to find out what I could about his 
ancestry because boys that the age of telematches can so easily get into the wrong company. Telematches wolfed down the food and knocked back the wine and I reproached myself for not having taught him better table manners. Nobody could say I hadn't tried, but every time I'd remonstrated with him, that old hen Eurethia had interposed. Come now, my child, let the boy enjoy his dinner. There'll be all the time in the world for matters once he's grown up, and much more in that vein. As the twig is bent, so will the tree grow, I would say. And that's just it, she would cackle. We don't want to bend the little twiggy, do we? Oh, nosy, nosy, no. We want him to grow straight and tall and get that juicy goodness out of his nice big hunk of meat without our cross-patch mummy making him all sad. Then the maids will giggle and heap his plate up and tell him what a fine boy he was. I'm sorry to say he was quite spoiled. Then the three young men had finished eating. I had asked about the trip. Had Telematches found out anything about Odysseus and his whereabouts and having been the object of his excursion? And if he had indeed discovered something, could he possibly bring himself to share this discovery with me? You can see things were still a little frosty on my part. It's hard to lose an argument to one's teenage son. Once they're taller than you are, you have only your moral authority, a weak weapon at best. What Telematches said next was surprised me a good deal. After dropping in on King Nestor, who could tell him nothing, he'd gone off to visit Melanius. Melanius himself. Melanius the rich. Melanius the thick-headed. Melanius of the loud voice. Melanius the cuckold. Melanius the husband of Helen. Cousin Helen. Helen the lovely. Helen the septic bitch. Root cause of all my misfortunes. And did you see Helen? I asked in somewhat constricted voice. Oh, yes, he said. She gave us a very good dinner. Then he launched into some more rigmarole about the old man of the sea and how Melanius had learned from this elderly and dubious-sounding gentleman that Odysseus was trapped on the island of, the, of a beautiful goddess where he was forced to make love with her all night, every night. By this time I'd heard one beautiful goddess story way too many. And how was Helen? I asked. She seemed fine, said Telematches. Everyone told stories about the war at Troy. There were great stories, a lot of fighting and combat and guts spilling out. My father was in them. And when all the old vets started blubbering, Helen spiked the drinks and then we laughed a lot. No, but, I said, how did she look? As radiant as golden Aphrodite, he said. It was a real thrill to see her. I mean, she's so famous and part of the history and everything. She was absolutely everything she's cracked up to be and more, he grinned sheepishly. She must be getting a little older by now, I said calmly, as, as calmly as I could. Helen could not possibly still be as radiant as golden Aphrodite. It would not be within nature. Oh, well, yeah, said my son. And now that bond which is supposed to exist between mothers and fearless sons, fatherless sons finally asserted itself. Telematchus looked into my face and read its expression. Actually, she did look quite old, he said, way older than you, sort of worn out, all wrinkly, he added, like an old mushroom, and her teeth are yellow. 
Actually, some of them have fallen out. It was only after we'd had a lot to drink that she still looked beautiful. I knew he was lying, but I was touched that he was lying for my sake. Not for nothing, he was the great-grandson of Autoclius, friend of Hermes, and Ar the arch-cheat, and the son of the wily Odysseus, of the soothing voice, fruitful in false invention, persuader of men and deluder of women. Maybe he had some brains after all. Thank you for all you have done, told me, my son, I said. I am grateful for it. I will now go and sacrifice a basket of wheat and pray for your father's safe return. And that's what I did. Chapter 19, Yelp of Joy. Who is to say that prayers have an, any effect? On the other hand, who is to say they don't? I picture the gods diddling around on Olympus, wallowing in the nectar and ambrosia, and the aroma of burning bones and fat, mischievous as a pack of ten-year-olds with a sick cat to play with and a lot of time on their hands. Which prayer shall we answer today, they ask one another. Let's cast dice. Hope for this one despair, for that one. And while we're at it, let's destroy the life of that woman over there by having sex with her in the form of a crayfish. I think they pull a lot of their pranks just because they're bored. Twenty years of my prayers had gone unanswered, but finally not this one. No sooner had I performed the familiar ritual and shed the familiar tears than Odysseus himself shambled into my courtyard. The shambling was part of a disguise, naturally. I would have expected no less of him. Evidently, he appraised the situation in the palace. The suitors, their wasting of his estates, their murderous intentions towards Telemachus, their appropriate appropriation of the sexual services of his maids and their intended wife grab, and wisely concluded that he shouldn't simply march in and announce that he was Odysseus and order them to vacate the premise. If he'd tried, that he'd have been a dead man within minutes. So he was dressed as, an old, as a dirty old beggar. He could count on the fact that most of the suitors had no idea what he looked like, having been too young or not even born when he'd sailed away. His disguise was well enough done. I hoped that the wrinkles and baldness were part of the act and not real, but as soon as I saw the barrel chest and those short legs, I had a deep suspicion, which became a certainty when I heard he'd broken the neck of a belligerent fellow panhandler. That was his style, stealthy when necessary. True, but he was never against the direct assault method when he was certain he could win. I didn't let on I knew I would have been it would have been dangerous for him, but if also if a man takes pride in his disguising skills, it would have would be a foolish wife who would claim to recognise him. It's always an imprudence to step between a man and the reflection of his own cleverness. Telemachus was in on the deception. I could see that as well. He was by nature a spinner of falsehoods like his father, but he was not yet very good at it. When he introduced the supposed beggar to me, his shuffling and stammering and sideways looks gave it away. That introduction didn't happen until later. Odysseus spent his first hours in the palace snooping around and being abused by the suitors who jeered and threw things at him. Unfortunately, 
I could not tell my 12 maids who he really was, so they continued their rudeness to Telemachus and joined the suitors in his insult, in their insults. Melantho of the pretty cheeks was particularly cutting, I was told. I resolved to interpose myself when the time was right and to tell Odysseus that the girls had been acting under my direction. When evening came, I arranged to see the supposed beggar in the now empty hall. He claimed to have news of Odysseus. He spun a plausible yarn and assured me that Odysseus would be home soon. And I shed tears and I and said I feared it was not so. As travellers had been telling me the same sort of thing for years. I described my sufferings at length and my longing for my husband. Better he should hear all this while in the guise of a vagabond, as he would be more inclined to believe it. Then I flattered him by consulting him for, for advice. I was resolved, I said, to bring out the great bow of Odysseus, the one with which he'd shot an arrow through twelve circular axe handles, an astounding accomplishment, and challenged the suitors to duplicate the feat, ordering myself as the prize. Joy that would bring an end, one way or another, to the intolerable situation which I found myself in. What did he think of that plan? He said it was an excellent idea. The songs claimed that on the arrival of Odysseus and my decision to set the test of the bow and axes coincided by accident or by divine plan, which was the, our way out of way of putting in then. Now you've heard the plain truth. I knew that only Odysseus would be able to perform this archery trick. I knew that the beggar was Odysseus. There was no coincidence. I set the whole thing up on purpose. Growing confidential with the purportedly seedy tramp, I then related a dream of mine. It concerned my flock of lovely white geese, geese of which I was really fond. I dreamt that they were happily pecking around the yard when a huge eagle with a crooked beak swooped down and killed all of them, whereupon I wept and wept. Odysseus the beggar interpreted this dream for me. The eagle was my husband, the geese were the suitors, and the one would shortly slay the others. He said nothing about the crooked beak of the eagle or my, lo my love for the geese and my anguish of their at their deaths. In the event, Odysseus was wrong about the dream. He was indeed the eagle, but the geese were not the suitors. The geese were my twelve maids as I was soon to learn to my under, uh, unending sorrow. There's a detail they make much of in the songs. I ordered the maids to wash the feet of Odysseus, the merchant, and he refused, saying he could only allow his feet to be washed by one who would not deride him from being gnarled and poor. I then proposed old Eurycleia for the task, a woman whose feet were as lacking in aesthetic value as his own. Grumbling, she set to work, not suspecting the booby trap I'd placed ready for her. Soon she found the long scar familiar to her from the many, many times she'd performed the same service for Odysseus. At this point, she let out a yelp of joy and upset the basin of water all over the floor, and Odysseus almost throttled her for give, from giving him away. The songs say I didn't notice a thing because Athene had distracted me. If you believe that, You'll believe all sorts of nonsense. In reality, I turned my back on the two of them to hide my silent laugh laughter at the success of my little surprise. <laughs>